All right, welcome everyone to our final session in a series that we call The Story of Your Life. I'll briefly explain what that has been about, but today concludes that. And then next week we do not meet for the Discovering God Hour and Sunday School Hour. Next week for Easter we have just the one service, worship service at 11 o'clock. Prior to that at 10.30 we will have cafe community, we'll have our bagels and, and so forth. But uh, the service will be from 11 to approximately noon uh, next week. Then two weeks from today, we will begin two new series. One during the 9.30 worship hour that's titled Our Problem and God's Promise. That will be from the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. And then in the, this hour, the 11 o'clock hour, we'll start a seven-week series called Why You Can Trust the Bible. So that is a series that I would encourage you to invite someone to, someone who uh, particularly doesn't know the origin of the Bible uh, and uh, how it was transmitted to us and the excellencies of the Bible that point to its uniqueness as God's Word. Uh, those are the things that we'll be looking at. So it's a, uh, an ideal series for outreach to, to bring a friend two weeks from today during this uh, 11 o'clock hour. And let me make a couple of announcements, and then we will get into this final session in the story of your life. This afternoon at, uh, this afternoon at 4.30, 4.30 to 8, three and a half hours total, we're having the second of two what we call servants seminars. We have those every year, and uh, we have them around this time of year for the purpose of setting aside some time to think about where the Lord has brought our church, where we are positioned now, and then based upon that, what we hope to accomplish in the future. The theme for this year is back to the future. And so the first portion of our time together this evening looks back at foundational principles that we established a long time ago. Uh, we rehearse those because they're absolutely necessary to undergird what we're going to do in the future. And then in the last portion, we talk about some of our uh, goals and some of the objectives uh, in the long term and in the immediate uh, next year that we want to accomplish. So those of you that are members of our church, that uh, that's... Uh, what we do every year, in, in effect, have a different theme and a different emphasis, but that's the idea. And uh, it's important, I think, for those who are members of our church to know about that so that the ministry that we offer each of us in our own respective areas is not, uh, are not disparate uh, uh, things going on, but rather they are united uh, in the purpose that we're all trying to achieve. So you need to know that. If you can be here for that, uh, that would be great. If you didn't register for it, we'll let you come anyway. Um, we, I'm told we'll have enough food for you during the about approximately 45 minutes to an hour that we'll have for a light dinner uh, tonight, subs and, and chips. So if you can come and you didn't register, then please do that tonight at uh, 4.30. 4.30 will be done by, by 8 o'clock. And then next Sunday with Easter, we're going to send an email around about this, but we're asking you to uh, park on the street on Benson if you're able. If you're not able, then park as close as you need to, of course. But if you are able to walk a distance, then park as far down Benson as you can, or park in the south lot. Uh, I mentioned that last weekend when we had the Living Last Supper here on Saturday night and Sunday evening, that we had a ton of people in this room, almost more than we could accommodate Sunday night especially. Uh, and that meant the parking was at a premium. And all of the parking out front, on Benson, all the way down Benson, and in the front uh, uh, spaces that we have here, those were all gone. But there were 30 spaces, I'm told, still available in the back. So that means a number of us have never been accustomed to parking in the back. So I'm asking you to consider that definitely for next week and in the weeks to come. That's uh, just uh, 
that, that is as close as most of the spots out here. There's a door there for you to, to come in as well. And for those of you that look for the uh, handicapped spots, I keep waiting for a fight to break out for the three or four that we have you know, out here because there's only three or four there. But there's another several in that south lot. So if you have, need a handicapped spot, there are some more back there close to that south door. So please use the street and the south lot next week so that our guests and our seniors and those who need a closer spot can use these up front. Next Sunday, 1030 for Cafe Community, 11 for our service. All right. We've been in a series called The Story of Your Life, and I'll try to quickly place in context what that series has been about, The Story of Your Life. And then uh, wrap up what we've been talking about in this final session. But we have over the last, this is the sixth session in this, in this series, and we've been looking at the fact that each of us, all of us, are a composite of two categories. We are, on the one hand, made in the image of God, and in the Bible's words in Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each of us are given by God gifts and abilities and differing personalities, and this is all by God's design and by God's good design. So even though we're all different, there is no such thing as somebody who's got the right personality. We think that in our sin. If everybody could just be like me, the world would be a much better place. Well, the world would be a really lousy place if everybody was like you. Now, if everybody was like me... (laughs) But if we were all the same, the world... God designed his world to have this kind of diversity. And yet, we look at personalities, we look at differences, and we see those as a negative when, in fact, we should see them as as a positive. But we do that because of the second category of what all of us are. We are all made in the image of God. We are all made uniquely. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We are all God's poema, according to Ephesians 2.10. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are that word poema, poem we get from it craftsmanship, work of art, masterpiece. God has designed us all the way we are. This is all to the good. This is that category. Then you've got the other category. The other category is we are all by nature sinful. And sin turns everything inward, turns everything toward me and now, rather than toward God and others and for for the long view. So sin turns everything inward so that I'm regularly thinking about what's happening with me and what's happening with me now and how are you affecting me and how are you affecting me now. So you got this difference that should be a good thing. You add to it this sinful perspective and now what should have been a good thing becomes a bad thing. And so I look at you instead of fearfully and wonderfully made as just a pain because you get in my way of what I want to do. And the way you are gets in the way of what, I, of what I want to do. And that sin nature that we have has two aspects to it. That we are born, we are conceived, the Bible teaches, in sin, so that we have this inward and now approach. Everything is drawn in. But then we are also around people who are like that, so that we are affected and, and are who we are, not only by our nature, but also by our nurture. 
We have seen sin modeled in front of us. So depending on your upbringing, you have seen particular ways of trying to handle disputes. You've overheard particular ways of talking about people and dealing with problems with people. And you picked all of that up. So you're naturally sinful and you've also learned how to sin from people around you. So you've got all this good stuff and you've got all this, and you've got all this bad stuff. And that's why I call it the story of your life. That's the story of your life. That's the story of my life. Unfortunately, what most of us do is we never take time because we've never been challenged to examine ourselves. And I think it was Alfred North Whitehead, but I might have it wrong, uh, who coined the phrase that the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life. And the Christian life can't be lived unless it's examined. The Christian life must be examined. In order for me to change into the image of Jesus, which is the goal of the Christian life, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Because I was made in God's image, but now that image has been distorted, and God is in the process of restoring that image. But that restoration doesn't happen unless I have an evaluation, and examination of where I am so I know where I need to go. But most of us never engage in that examination. And the reasons are many, and I've given many of them, but I've challenged you in these last couple of weeks to be willing, because you are able if you're a Christian, be willing because you are able if you're a Christian, to engage in this kind of examination and even to enlist others to help you do the examination to see where you are. Now, I say you are able if you are willing. And how do I know you're able? Well, you're able because you find your identity in Jesus. You don't find your identity in comparing and contrasting yourself to other people. And if you lose that idea, if you'll lose the idea that my worth and my identity is found in how I shape up when compared and contrasted to other people, if you'll lose that and you find your identity in Jesus, you can now be secure like the great apostle was. When he said, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, I care very little whether I am judged by you or any human court. My conscience is clear, he says, but even that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. I'm secure in my position in Jesus. And so therefore, what other people say is not what's important, but then he doesn't do what modern psychology would tell us to do. Okay, if you find yourself you know, worrying about what other people say and other people are saying bad things about you, then say, who cares about them? Get lost. I mean, just start, you know, start talking in a way and dressing in a way that says, I just don't care. You know what I mean? I mean, get an attitude. It just says, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care what anybody else thinks. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say cop an attitude. <laughs> he says, it's true that my life is not dictated by what other people think, but it's also not dictated by what I think. It's dictated by what the Lord thinks. So I say, if you're a Christian, you can do this kind of examination if you're willing to do that. You can because you have this secure position in Jesus. So that now, though painful, I can look at myself in the mirror and see myself for what I really am, and I can even allow others to engage in that and help me with that. 
So we are all this composite of this good and this, and this bad. And I asked you to do some homework the last couple of weeks. I asked you a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, to get with someone you trust, who cares about you, who has your best spiritual interest at heart, and ask them, tell me about me. Tell me about what you see in me. Tell me about what you've seen. Tell me the good, the bad, and the, and the ugly. I can take it. Okay? Now, uh, some of you I know have done that because you have come and told me you've done that. And you, you're mad at me now. <laughs> because the person actually told you. <laughs> you. I don't think you're mad at me. But, but several of you have said, you know, I've, I've done that. And it's been a very cathartic thing. It's been a very good thing for me to see myself objectively because we don't see ourselves objectively. But then the other thing I asked you to do last week was then to ask four questions. What goes on in my normal week, week? What goes on that causes me difficulty in my relationships? What goes on? What's happening? And then ask the question, what do I do in response to what's happening? And then ask yourself, what do you think about what's happening. And then lastly, ask yourself, what do you want to be happening? What do you want? Now, the reason that last question, all of the questions are important, but that last question is absolutely foundational is because what we want dictates how we think and what we do. So I had you ask the questions in reverse order, but at the foundation, at the heart of the issues for us is what we want, what we desire. And we saw that last week from James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, what you want that wars within you and then comes outward in your relationships? So you're asking yourself then, what do I want? All right. Now what you're going to have to do, and this is what I want to attack in this final session, is what do I do about that? I mean, you've laid all the garbage out there. Thank you. You know, I've asked somebody, tell me about me. They told me about me. I'm asking these questions about what normally takes place in my life and how I respond to it and what I'm thinking about it and what I want. But now what do I do about it? So here's my answer to that. And stay with it. It's not as simplistic, I don't think, as it at first sounds. But in order for us to change, to, to really change, if our desires and our wants are foundational, they're at the heart of the issue for us, if that's true, and biblically it is, if that's the case, then we have to change what we want. We must change what we want. Now here's why. Remember I said sin turns us inward, turns us toward ourselves, and turns us toward what's happening now. And so what we by nature, sinful nature, want is about what I want. It's centered on me. In order for me to change the paradigm of my life and my relationships with others, I now have to change what I want to be not what I want for me and now, but what I want for God and for others. I have to change the direction of what I want. Years ago, I had a debate with a friend. I told you, many of you know, that I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My dad was a pastor, and our Pentecostal church taught that you could lose your salvation, 
That is, the church I grew up in did not believe in something that I'm convinced the Bible actually teaches, which is eternal security. That when you are a believer in Christ, then you are in his family forever, and he does not disinherit his children. So eternal security. But I didn't grow up in a church that believed that. And I remember, as a young adult, uh, I was arguing with one of my friends who, who grew up in that church. And he said, well, if I believe in eternal security then that means you can do whatever you want and you're still going to be saved. And then he says to me, if I believed like you believe, this was his terminology, I'd just hang up my Bible. And I'd just live like the devil. Now that's actually very concerning, isn't it? Because you see, friends, when we get saved, the orientation, when we're born again, the orientation of what we want changes. So I, I, I can't say if God says, you know what, Brown, if Jesus were to visit me this afternoon and say, you know what, just do whatever you want. If what I want would be just next week, hope you guys find somebody to preach to you, because I'll be in Vegas. I mean, if I really get to do what I want, I mean, in my heart's desires, this is what I want. Now, it's not, by the way. But if I say that, that says something very disturbing, doesn't it? Now, I'm a sinner as you are, and I have to be reminded about what I'm supposed to want, and I need to cultivate the right kinds of desires. But at its heart, literally at its heart, in order for us to change the dynamic of the story of our lives, we have to change what we want. Now, we're all fond of quoting Psalm 37 and verse 4, that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us, what? The desires of our heart. Well, yeah. But again, what are those desires? Are those desires centered on you? Are those desires centered on God and others? Remember how that verse starts. Delight yourself in who? In the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Not every now and then throw up a prayer to Jesus to give you the stuff you want. That's the way we interpret that. I've got my desires. Jesus is promising to help me out with my desires. Nope. Jesus is saying you need to have your desires, your wants, transformed. All right, so then what does that look like? What does it look like for me to move from using what God has given me instead of for myself to for God and others? I'm going to give you some examples. Some examples of how we are this composite of good and bad, fearfully, wonderfully made, made in the image of God, uniquely designed by God, but then it all gets distorted because sin gets in the mix. So here are some examples. I was talking with someone just yesterday at our servant seminar, and we talked about this one. So this is where this example came from. That uh, They were saying, hey, what's the difference between somebody who's got tact, has the ability to be tactful, versus somebody who's manipulative? What's the difference between those? 
You see, because being tactful, the ability, the God-given ability to be tactful in a situation where something has come up and you have to be able to think quickly and to be able to say the right thing tactfully to diffuse the situation, I mean, that's an ability not all of us have. Some people have it better than others. I mean, we were at our bowling event uh, a month or two ago. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and generally, you know, something will come up that sounds sort of pastoral when something comes up. But I'm at the bowling event. And uh, Rocky and Tony are there. Are Rocky and Tony here? Where's Rocky and Tony? Oh, good. I can talk about Rocky and Tony. Cool. (laughs) So we're at the bowling event, you know, and and, uh, Tony, Rocky's wife, comes up to me and says, uh, I bowled uh, 35. And uh, I'm standing there with about six other people, and my mind is racing. And in my brain, if there was a picture of what was going on in my brain, it's quickly searching under all the files. You know, that's what you do. You try to tactfully say something. Generally, something comes up. I find a file, and I'm able to say something. But I'm racing through the files, and like nothing, I don't hit on anything. I don't have a file that says I bowled 35. I don't have one. So while I'm looking for it, I go, um... Um, see, that's, that's what you say and what I say when we're looking for stuff, okay? Um, um, that's really bad. <laughs> and like the six people fall down laughing, and yet Tony still comes to our church, and she'll be okay with me telling you that she bowled 35, all right? Now, what's the difference, though, between someone who has the ability to be tactful and somebody who manipulates? Well, tact, that ability to think quickly and to say the right thing at the right time, is a God-given thing to be directed toward God and others. But we can use that same God-given ability with our sin nature, and it becomes distorted to our own ends so that we manipulate. And the key difference is, how am I using that ability, or to put it better, for whom am I using that ability? When I use my tact for God and others, it's a great thing. When I use that same ability for myself, it becomes manipulation. Or here's another one. You have the God-given ability to talk. And that's a God-given gift for you to be able to talk and to articulate Words are sacred. God has communicated to us in words. God has given us the ability to to process words and to speak in words. And so therefore the Bible warns us over and over again to be very careful about our words. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 36, we will be judged for every careless word that we speak. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, let no corrupt communication Come out of your mouth, but only that which is for the building up, the edification of others, and on it goes. So you've got this ability to speak, and it's a God-given ability to be used for God and for others, to bless. But that same ability can be used for you, for you to dominate every conversation, for you to debate and win every argument. 
And the one becomes the other when it moves from being for the purpose of God and others to being for me and about me. Remember what sin does. Sin draws us inward. It's about me and it's about now. And I use these good gifts, now not for God's ends and for the benefit of others, but for myself. Here's another. The ability to think clearly, to organize, to plan. It's a very... Not everybody can do that. Not everybody is organized. Not everybody can plan and see all the details of what needs to happen. It's a great gift, as long as it's used for, for others. But when used for you, it can very easily become scheming to get what I want. Scheming to get what I want. You know, if you've got a personality that's fun-loving, God-given, fun-loving personality, you know, not uptight, well, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a gift as well. Just funnily, people enjoy being around. People feel comfortable being around a person. And that is designed to be used for God and for other people. But when it's focused on me rather than for other people, being fun-loving can become irresponsible. Or maybe by personality, naturally, you're shy and retiring but you have a very quiet spirit about you. And that, too, is a very attractive thing that can make people feel comfortable with you. Uh, and you're willing, and, and you, you can listen to people because you're not talking all the time, like guys like me are. So you, you have that shy, kind of quiet personality. And it's a very good thing when that is channeled toward God and toward others. But it becomes a very sinful thing when it's channeled toward you, when you become morbidly introspective. When that shy, quiet person spends their shy, quiet moments thinking about them and introspecting about themselves, what one author called navel-gazing. Just contemplating your plot, your lot in life and doing so generally alone. So during cafe community, this is just a test. This is only a test. But what are you doing during cafe community? Shy, retiring person. Are you, are you going out of your comfort zone to, to bless other people? Or are you strictly focused on yourself and people have to come to you? Add to that, with that kind of personality... That person can have an inordinate fear of man, to use the Bible's language. Proverbs 29 and verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. Now, what is the fear of man? It's the opposite of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs has this theme. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. But then there's also the, the fear of man. What is that? Fear is the, the reverence for the Lord, the prioritizing of the Lord and the Lord's interests and the, and the Lord's objectives. But fear of man is reverencing people and prioritizing people's desires and objectives. And when that shy person has the fear of man, here's what they'll do. They'll become more shy because I'm not going to talk because I might say something stupid. And I care so much, I revere what people think so much 
then I'm not going to risk it. So you could take any good thing that God has given us, and you could say this is how it becomes distorted when it moves from being focused on God and others to being focused on me. Now that's what you're supposed to do then with what you've gathered if you've done the homework that I asked you to do the last two weeks. You're supposed to then have this better view of yourself and then ask yourself, how is it that I take what I am and I focus that on myself rather than on God and others because of what I want, what I want for me? Now, let me take that a little bit further. So what should I, what should I do? What should I do? Well, consider this. Consider that God is actually, friends, all you need. That the Lord Jesus is ultimately all you need. Now you say, man, that just sounds like preacher speak. Is it really practical to say that in Jesus I have everything I need? The answer to that is yes. And when you become convinced of that, Now you can begin to look outward because in Jesus you have everything you need. I can begin to use my God-given abilities and strengths and gifts and personality for God and for others. Because in Jesus I'm satisfied and I have everything I need. Now do you all remember in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, Luke 10, 38 to 42. And this is the encounter that Jesus has with Mary and Martha. And he comes to Bethany where apparently he, he's, he's visited a number of times. He has become friends with this family. Uh, he will later come to Bethany where their brother Lazarus will have died and he will raise Lazarus from the dead. But he comes for a, a visit. And here's what the Bible says. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. All right. So... This becomes, you know, I'm ticked at, I'm ticked at uh, Mary, all spiritual Mary, okay? You know, there's work to be done here, Mary, okay? And by the way, Jesus, don't you care about this? An accusation at him. Tell her. Get the work. And then Jesus says this in verse 41, Martha, Martha. And every time I read that, I stop and say, when Jesus says your name twice, you're in trouble. It's like when your mom says your middle name. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Now, in this scenario, who's Martha focused on? She's focused on her and the stuff she can do. And Mary's focused on Jesus. And Jesus says, you're worried and upset about many things. Those many things are not about me, ultimately. 
But then he says this, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So the first thing that we've got to do to change what we want is to consider that in Jesus we have everything we need. And if I'm really honestly convinced that in Jesus I have everything I need, then I can begin to look outward rather than what sin causes me to do. As I say, look inward, focused on myself and now. Now here's what that means. For me to continue to do that and to be strengthened in that, that in, in my Lord I have everything I need. And so I don't have to then use what God has given me to get what I want. I got everything that I should want in him. But to strengthen me in that then, I have to continually be getting to know the Lord Jesus better. I have to continually be getting to know about him, who he is, what he's done for me, what he is like, and becoming every day enamored with with Jesus. Now that's why many of the people that I have to try to help out of crisis, and if you get into a crisis, I'll try to help you out of it, okay? So I'm not saying, if you get into one, we'll do our best. But very often the people that I have to help out of crisis are people who have not been taking advantage day in and day out, week in and week out, of getting to know Jesus better through all of the avenues that are offered to us to study about him and to learn of him. But there is no substitute for getting to know who Jesus is better. So consider that God, the Lord Jesus, is all I need. And be engaged in continually getting to know him better. Well, how do you do that? You do that through learning of him, learning his word, meditating on his word. And then here's the the last thing. Consider what truths you're failing to believe. Consider what truths you are failing to believe. So consider that the Lord is all you need. So that now these wants and these desires that animate my responses and what I do are changed. And then remember in those questions I ask you, the second to the last one was, well, what do you think? To put that another way is, what do you believe about what's happening? And so I'm suggesting now, in reverse order with that, consider the truths that you really don't believe. What do you mean? Don't raise your hand to this, but Are you in a difficult situation right now? And a bunch of you are. And I don't even know everybody here, let alone there are situations. But but a bunch of you are because man is born to trouble, Job chapter 5 and verse 7, as sparks fly upward. Life in a fallen world is full of difficulty and trials. So are you in a difficult situation? Now my question, more importantly the Bible's question is, what do you believe about that? And here's what James 1 and verse 2 says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when, not if, you fall into trials of various kinds. Now here's what verse 3 says. For you know. 
Here's something James says, you know. You know that the testing of your faith develops these good things. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that in every circumstance that comes into your life, do you really believe that God is accomplishing something good? And if we're honest, the answer often for us is, no, I don't believe that. And therefore, I don't have this joy that James says I can and should have. Or Romans 8.28. You know, we cross-stitch it. We put it, you know, on our walls. When we, you know, sign a card, that might be our life verse. But here's what it says. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now notice how it starts. And we know. And over and over again in Scripture, the Bible is saying, and we know this to be true. We know this to be true about God. We know this to be true about his purposes. We know this to be true about ourselves. But when we are not reacting to what's happening in our lives, as God says, it means I know that, but I don't believe it. So ask yourself, what truth don't I really believe? And then lastly, going in reverse order with those things I ask you, those questions I asked you to ask last week. Remember, it's what's going on, but then the next one is what do you do in response to what's going on, or what do you th- and what do you think and believe about what's going on, and what do you want from what's going on? In that order, now in reverse order, you've got to change what you want. To change what you want means to consider God is all that I need. Get to know God better. Going in reverse order now, what is it that I think and believe? What truth do I really not believe? And then lastly, ask yourself, what is it that God has commanded me to do? What is it that God has commanded me to do? Now, here's the good news. If you get the bottom one right, if you get the desire right, the wants right, and you get the thinking and belief right, then what you do flows from that. What I'm told and commanded to do will flow naturally and automatically from what it is I want and what it is I believe. If I want the right things and I believe the truth, then I will do in response what God has told me to do. This is why Jesus could say, you say, Pastor, okay, you give your simpleton prescription. This is what you do. Do a bunch of God stuff. Well, if I'm a simpleton for that, I'm in good company. Because the first part of your Bible spilled a lot of ink telling you a lot of do's and don'ts. And Jesus was asked, of all of the 613 commands and prohibitions in the first part of the Bible, okay, they didn't give the number, I'm giving you the number, 613. Of all of those, which is the greatest? And you remember in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now throughout this thing, what I've been saying is sin draws us inward and toward ourselves rather than toward God and others. And Jesus summarizes the entire law by saying it's about God and it's about others. And if what you want is what God wants, 
And if what you believe is what God says, if you've got those two, then you will do that. Everything else will be summarized in that. All right, friends, that's the story of your life. And I would encourage you to continue to analyze who you are, how God has made you, and how these good things God has made you to be become distorted. And do that with the people that you have a relationship with. May the Lord develop in us the humility to be able to see ourselves clearly and to go to those people that we have wronged, those people for whom we might be obstacles to their spiritual growth because of these distortions due to the sin that's in all of us. And he will grant us that humility only as we are secure in Jesus, only as we see that in him we have all that we need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these weeks together to be able to look at this important issue of how you have made us, how you have made us wonderfully, and yet, Lord, how each of us is distorted by the sin that indwells us. And so, Lord, I am, I am yet a, a distortion, and in many ways a gross distortion of what you intended me to be. I look forward to the time when I will see Jesus And I will be like him, for I shall see him as he is. Lord, in the meantime, you are changing me and you are changing us, day by day, into the image of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that that would be uppermost in my desires, in our desires. To please you, to be like you, to reflect you back to you, which is what you mean when you say bring glory to you. So help us, Lord, to be people who desire to bring glory to you. To be like Jesus in the way we think and in the way we talk and in the way we act. And because we have been given all that we need in Jesus, that should be really all we want is Jesus. And if we're secure in that, Lord, then then help us to move forward in being able to see ourselves clearly. Ask others what we are like. Make the changes that are necessitated by the truth of your word. Analyzing what it is we want that has become more important than you, even good things that have become more important than you. And analyzing those things that we come to church and sing about and read about and nod our head in affirmation on, and yet when circumstances come into our lives, it indicates we really don't believe them. So Lord, help us to be honest. And that honesty can only come through your, your spirit and the security that you provide in Jesus. Help us to do that, not just for the duration of this short series, but this coming week, each day, so that we may please you in all of our interactions and in all that we do. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.